0: executive branch into the Department of State, and for uh, those of you who are aware of how uh, diplomats or ranks in serving in the Home Office here, while the bulk of them are deployed and attached to U.S. embassies abroad. for an alibis is the Assistant Secretary of State for the Near East. There's only one of those, and few have attained uh, that position. We're lucky at the National Council on U.S. Air Relations that the chairman of the International Advisory Board is one who reached that peak, and that is uh, Ambassador Richard Murphy, who was our ambassador to the Philippines to Mauritania, who thought he may be in addition to becoming the Assistant Secretary of State and uh, one of uh, the very few career ambassadors, of which there can only be six at any one time, of the thousands of diplomats we have, uh, that the chairman of the International Advisory Board attained that rank is quite something. He sends his regards. He had a prior even long before he accepted the position of being the chairman. And many of you know or may not know that uh, a long-term chairman, uh, Congressman Paul Finley, 23 years in the Congress and also on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, a champion of many in terms of human rights, in terms of nuclear issues, non proliferation issues. And any and all of those who come from an agricultural region he was known as the prince of land grant colleges throughout the United States. No one helped to uh, shoulder most of them one year to the next more oh, than did Paul Finley. We have a fellowship in his name. It's not monetary, uh, but it's for those among our summer interns who follow most closely in his footsteps in terms of example: the values, the traits, the integrity, the leadership the courage uh, that he uh, personified all his life. Underneath the assistant secretary are six deputy assistant secretaries, and these are divided uh, in terms of region or function or combination of the two. And our next uh, speaker is the senior of these six principal, uh, six deputy assistant secretaries. So he's known as the PDAS. Deputy Assistant Secretary, a position that many would aspire to uh, but most uh, find elusive. Uh, The bulk of his career has been in the Middle East, focused on Arabia and the Gulf, but he's been the Deputy Chief of Mission in some of the real hot spots in terms of Kuwait, in terms of Iraq, in terms of Saudi Arabia, in terms of, of serving in Yemen, in terms of serving in Qatar terms of serving in Asmara and Ethiopia as a liaison uh, to the rebels in Balfour. Uh, please join me in welcoming Justice, uh, Deputy, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, Mr. Joey Hood.
1: is certainly the most eloquent introduction I've ever been given, and uh, I'll try to remember it because when people ask me my title at the State Department, I say, don't worry about it. I just work at the State Department because it's too long. But uh, you described it beautifully. Uh, I'm pleased to be able to join you again. The last time I was honored to participate in in an event with Dr. Anthony. Was when he was visiting Yemen in 2006 as part of a delegation of congressional and Middle Eastern experts. We appreciate the work that Dr. Anthony and everyone at the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations does in forging closer ties between America and the Arab world. Let me give you a brief uh, update on how the State Department views the challenges we see in the region. I know that many of you are. A are more expert than I'll ever be on these issues. So I'll try to give you just a few points of view that you might not be tracking. You're well aware of our views on Turkey's invasion of Northeastern Syria, so I'm not going to go into detail on that, other than to say that we remain committed to ensuring the lasting defeat of ISIS and the protection of religious and ethnic minorities everywhere, but especially in Syria. We remain committed also to confronting the threat posed by Iran, whether from what it's doing in Syria, its nuclear activities, its ballistic missiles, or running militias in other people's countries, whether that's in Iraq or Yemen or elsewhere. Iran, as we've said, Secretary Pompeo has said on many occasions, must change its behavior and act like a normal nation, or it will watch its economy to ISIS, consolidating our hard-won gains will require a continued investment. That's why we are the top donor nation in Iraq when it comes to humanitarian assistance and demining operations and repairing hospitals, schools, water, and electricity systems, and training and equipping the Army and the Border Guards and the Counterterrorism Service. We also provide Intelligence support. And I can provide you all the budget information on these efforts. It's publicly available because we go and ask Congress for it and they approve it. On the other hand, who knows what Iran is giving to Iraqi armed groups? And therein lies our objection to Tehran's approach to its foreign relations. As we saw earlier this month, Iraqis are objecting en masse to this destabilizing influence, too, as well as the economic constipation, political patronage, and rampant corruption that it encourages. After all, your economy can't run efficiently if you have to pay off armed thugs just to run a small business or drive your truck down the highway. The Lebanese have also had enough, as we've heard loud and clear over the past week, Those recent events underscore the need for a frank discussion between the Lebanese people and their leadership about the future of their country, and the Lebanese people's long-standing demands for economic reform, and an end to endemic corruption bitter as well. It will be up to the Lebanese people to decide whether the Cabinet's recent reform plan goes far enough to satisfy their legitimate desires, for a prosperous and thriving country free of corruption, but the United States stands ready to assist the Lebanese government as it takes the necessary steps to fulfill those aspirations. More broadly, though, the United States, through support to its partners in Lebanon, Iraq, and elsewhere, needs to help show skeptical publics that political participation is worthwhile, engagement in existing democratic processes is down across the region. While I was in Iraq, participation in national elections in 2018 was at its lowest since 2005. Just a quarter of eligible voters participated. That's almost as bad as a U.S. congressional election. I mean, you know, we have to ring the alarm bell here. But there are also bright spots. 65% of Tunisian voters turned out in the second round of the presidential election last month, and the fact that the Lebanese and the Iraqis are out there in their thousands voicing their concerns peacefully and in a pan-sectarian way, it's really an important milestone. The Iraqis liberated their territory from ISIS with our help. to survive a sudden influx of over a million Syrian refugees in each of their countries and one of the world's worst humanitarian disasters right on their doorsteps. These experiences have given people confidence and a stronger sense of national identity, but have also upped the bar for what their people expect from their government. We want to support those greater demands for quality public services, We have technical assistance at the ready. And the American companies are known throughout the world as being far more transparent than most of their rivals. If you want to reduce corruption, go with American companies. We know that we have competing models out there. We know that Russia is supposedly making a comeback in the region, and China is seeking greater influence. Both countries, I think you know, offer an empty vision that empowers authoritarians like Bashar al-Assad, saddles countries with debt, and enables corruption. Russia's support for Assad has facilitated brutal attacks on civilians for years, and Russia did nothing as he deployed chemical weapons on his own people. We have yet to see China or Russia take a principled stand on human rights in the region or elsewhere. They remain unconcerned about human suffering and completely reject the rights of conscience that we and people in the Middle East and North Africa value so dearly. So we need to be out there, offering a better alternative to that. And to that end, and contrary to popular narratives about American disengagement from the Middle East, we remain deeply invested. The U.S. business community is a critical component of that. There are more than 200,000 Americans living and working in the Gulf countries alone. In 2018, American businesses had over $72 billion in direct investments in the Middle East. To give you a sense of scale, that's the size of the entire Omani economy. It's huge. These investments are helping to grow more productive economies and create tens of thousands of local jobs. Last year alone, America and the Gulf countries exchanged over $80 billion in goods. That's just goods, not counting services. To give just one example of how our official assistance helps our partners, USAID helped eliminate polio in Egypt. Full stop. And we support immunization campaigns now to keep Egypt polio-free. We've brought clean water and sanitation to over 25 million people there, and at least one match those numbers of course they can't. We like all of you are committed to the lasting partnerships that those numbers represent between America and the Arab world and your diplomats are out there every single day in most places with their families and we're working with organizations like the National Council and other civil society organizations to bring about that better future. Please continue to help us with your ideas, and thank you very much for all that you do.